Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast Let's Talk Inclusion where we discuss ideate and create ways to promote an inclusive approach to city planning and urban development. In this podcast we bring together the best minds on an array of topics related to inclusion. We will host key subject matter experts, change makers and leaders from across the policy, governance and grassroots levels who are committed to bringing about an inclusive change in the urban domain. The podcast will focus on four thematic areas namely social, spatial, economic and digital inclusion. This podcast is brought to you by the Inclusive Cities Center of the National Institute of Urban Affairs. Hello, I am Veronica Ujjnamai, your host for today. Today the topic that we are going to discuss about is something that has been part of my daily conversation for the past 2 years i've been working in a team called the building accessible safe and inclusive indian cities program on disability inclusion i think uh, disability inclusion over the years i think it's because of uncprd or the uh, rights with persons with disability act and the smart cities and so much of advocacy people have gotten so much of momentum i think with this niua has also been working on disability inclusion as a cross cutting agenda across all thematic programs but basic also has been uh, quite active we've been working on including persons with disability in the urban agenda so yeah i mean instead of talking ex- bringing in external people i think we have two very special people here today i think uh, i would like to welcome my colleagues kanika bansal and aarti thakur uh, aarti thakur is a disability rights officer at the un resident coordinators office she has over 8 years of experience in the non-profit sector particularly in the field of disability rights Uh, she has also worked with international and national organizations uh, uh, man- managing several right based projects and advocacy initiatives to advance the right of persons with disabilities uh, kanika bansal has been working as a senior program associate with basic team at niua an urban planner and architect by qualification she has been involved in development of the harmonized guidelines and standards for universal accessibility in india the inclusive city framework and other toolkits to facilitate inclusive planning and uh, universal design to begin this discussion uh, i would like to start with a quote it says inclusion is intentional uh, it is about identifying and removing barriers so that everyone can participate to their best of their ability i think over the years um, humankind has evolved we 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 keep on talking about this i think within our group as well uh, about how you know what what are the kind of changes that's happened no oh, time flies and so on and so forth so i think our technology quality and way of life over time has improved but that has also you know led to new challenges uh, for example let's say we have cell phones that has made communication so much easier but what we see is also because of this evolution our issues of um, a digital divide let's say you know older person not being able to use cell phones or lack of know how the issue of accessibility uh, if you have to come with persons with disability uh, in that way we also see concepts evolving over time because we see that previous ones are archaic or needs improvement um again now again as i reflect back even within the past two years there has been so much of shift in uh, perspective with respect to disability inclusion um, while for me it's been too i can only imagine uh, the kind of changes with the efforts of many disability advocates change makers have brought to this entire discussion of what disability inclusion is i think on that note today i'm excited to have like again introducing kanika and aarti they both have been working on the same issue but on different things like kanika as an architect and urban planner i think she brings with her technical knowledge perspective on the urban built environment aarti here brings the social dimension of it to this discussion so i will again once again thank you both for taking out this time. thank you so much ranikaya yeah so um, let me start with you aarti i mean given your experience of being in this sector for more than 8 years and having worked with both national and international ngos i mean what is your opinion on disability inclusion in india 
so uh, thank you you've already set the context right and basically you've already answered uh, the question as well so there is a lot of visibility and focus on disability and disability inclusion now whether we talk about government or the private sector or uh, international institutions or intergovernmental organizations a government uh, of india in particular has made uh, some positive efforts in the realm of social inclusion and the rights of uh, persons with disabilities with the passage of the RPWD Act, which is the Rights of Persons with Disabilities Act. Uh, we also have a non-discrimination clause, which is a, punis a punishable offence. Uh, we have a provision of 4% uh, reservation for government uh, vacancies. There are provisions for setting up special courts and district level committees. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, you know uh, good provisions under this law that advance the rights of persons with disabilities in India. Uh, but with regard uh, regards to accessibility, for example, uh, we ha also have the National Building Code. Uh, earlier, uh, accessibility was just an, an extra in uh, the National Building Code, but now we have it as a separate chapter. Uh, guidelines for Indian government website, it ensures compliance with uh, le uh, A2 levels of uh, web accessibility uh, guidelines for all government websites and apps being uh, designed and developed by the government. So uh, apart from that, we've also seen that the government of India has launched the Accessible India campaign, uh, the Sugamya Postakalya, to name a few. So we we have seen some good work happening with regards to disability inclusion. If you talk about the private sector, a lot of uh, organizations have adopted an equal opportunity policy and we see increasing number of uh, employees with disabilities. Uh, reasonable accommodation is being provided to these uh, to the employees with disabilities. Um, also, the United Nations, for example, is you know taking up uh, disability inclusion in a very strong way. Uh, we have you know developed disability inclusion uh, strategy, which is a UN uh, you know system policy action plan. It's an accountability framework. It will help us strengthen our system-wide accessibility and mainstream the rights of persons with disabilities. You know, following a twin-track approach, so not just uh, uh, programs on disability inclusion, but also ensuring that all uh, our programs have disability inclusion uh, with um, with the partnership of persons with disabilities so this uh, policy established the, uh, establishes the highest level of commitment uh, and a vision for united system on disability inclusion in the coming decade so the point is that we have the laws that provide the much needed momentum <laughs> as we do see a change taking place physically, uh, physically also and in our conversations also. But in spite of that, you know, the, the intent is still limited. Uh, for example, when it comes to accessibility, our thinking is only limited to ramps and handrails, but accessibility becomes more than that. If you look at the current pandemic, for instance, uh, although disproportionately uh, it has impacted persons with disabilities uh, the most around the world, even though uh, you know they were uh, more suspect, uh, susceptible to the uh, coronavirus due to their health conditions, they had limited access to healthcare facilities during the lockdown period. Also, uh, they were not prioritized during the vaccinations and the social protection policies were also very uh, you know weak so there we see that qualities uh, are still uh, you know visible uh, in our uh, system apart from this uh, the pandemic also accelerated digitalization so there was a lack of internet um, accessibility for persons with disabilities lack of equipment because of which uh, students with disabilities could not attend uh, classes online and uh, that has pushed them back by a decade this is what i feel and of course uh, we understand that this is a slow process we understand you know rome was not built in a day so definitely it will take time for us to reach the next phase but in our everyday lives in our uh, area of work no matter what we are doing whether we are in human resource whether we are in product design whether we are in communications um, urban planning policy making uh, we should ensure that disability inclusion becomes a priority we should think about accessibility every day to bring the change we want to see and it should not remain an afterthought
Thanks, Aarti. I think you really well elaborated progress that India is making in terms of disability inclusion. And I mean, if I may add, I think it's also all because of the kind of shift that has been made. We've shifted from charity-based model to now a right-based model. For the benefit of our audience, could you just explain what the right-based model has done to India in urban scenario? So yeah, so the uh, see over time the conceptualization of disability has been changing and um, uh, there are uh, a few models there out there but for uh, just, just for the audience right now I'll explain uh, four to five models the first is of course the religious and the moral model which is the oldest model of disability and it is found in our religious traditions it just regards that a person with disability it's a punishment from god for past life sins so this kind of thinking has a very devastating impact and it results in social exclusion another perspective under the same model is also that you know people with disabilities are looked at by you know they're like specially selected by god basically one of their senses is impaired then all the other senses become heightened so they are seen as someone with special powers at um, and a higher calling and you know people with uh, special abilities so again this is in a negative connotation uh, closely associated with this uh, negative view of disability is the charity model uh, which views people more as like helpless and dependent on society they're not uh, they're not able to provide for themselves so basically they are like pitied upon where you know people give arms and food to persons with disabilities it's also a way of uh, for people to gain the grace of god and lessen cover their own sins right so moving on in the 1800s uh, we saw the medical model develop which viewed people uh, people with disabilities as the problem basically it saw that the impairment that the people have emphasized that some kind of medical intervention is required to cure the sick people um, you know as something that needs to be fixed so this model gave again it gave a very negative connotation of disability and saw that people with disabilities were uh, people without disabilities were being portrayed as uh, superior to persons with disabilities so given the limitation of the medical model then we move on to the social model which was developed as a response to it around the 1960s and the 70s basically in this model disability is viewed more as a socially uh, constructed phenomena it focuses on the individual's um, uh, environment uh, whether it is physical, whether it is systemic, whether it's attitudinal or social. So that has a disabling effect on the individual. Right. So the social model, it creates a, a distinction between disability and impairment. So if tomorrow, if I lose a limb and I become impaired, uh, it is the environment around me that will cause the disability. So if you see it, in, uh, it you know, in a way explains uh, disability as part of the social oppression. It kind of flips from the earlier thought uh, process of looking at persons with disabilities as the problem and puts the focus on society on and on what they should be doing morally to ensure that accessibility and inclusion of persons with disabilities is there in the society. Again, then based on the same premise of the social model, we also have a rights-based mo model. So this views persons with disabilities as right holders and equal participants in society, right? So the, so the social model uh, initiated a paradigm uh, shift by focusing on, you know, reducing or removing the barriers that the society creates for full participation of persons with disabilities. And building on that social model, the rights-based model provides an even more dramatic shift perspective by starting the conversation about empowering persons with disabilities to know, know and claim their rights and by putting the onus on the state for respecting, protecting and fulfilling their rights. Basically emphasizing on you know human dignity of persons with disabilities and income it compasses uh, human rights civil and political as well as economic social and cultural rights. So basically it's that's the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability is in line with this model. I think Aarti uh, here I think what you said I want to go back to the first discussion that we had where you said so much have happened but there's just lack of intent in it some sort of lack of motivation that you have intent is there but yeah a practice uh, practice implementation is the, the issue okay so that part of it how do you think this shift that you had just mentioned about from religious to charity to social to right-based uh, model do you think this has sort of um, 
been translated into a meaningful progress? Has it helped implementation a little bit or what, what are your opinions on it? I mean, definitely there is no denying there has been a significant progress over the past few uh, decades, both internationally and nationally. Particularly if you look at the adoption of the UNCRPD, which I just mentioned, uh, you know, it is of course based on the premise of equality and non-discrimination, which has brought about a paradigm shift that has taken place from the charity base to the uh, rights-based model. Uh, and state parties, uh, parties that are signatory to this uh, convention, uh, they have been mandated to ensure that you know human rights of persons with disabilities is, is respected, protected, and uh, fulfilled on equal basis with others. So uh, whether it is uh, you know uh, participation in uh, political uh, life, whether it is independent living, equal recognition before the law, uh, the UNCRPD calls for nothing about us without uh, without us, which is also the slogan of the disability uh, sector. And we've also seen this, you know, somehow, uh, I mean, uh, this has also been translated into the global agenda. So the earlier millennium, uh, millennium de development goals, you know, they did not mention disability at all. Uh, but the current uh, 2030 agenda for sustainable development does. Uh, persons with disabilities uh, are actually mentioned, if you look at the document, they're mentioned 11 times uh, under five uh, goals. And also in places where they say, you know, persons with disabilities also form part of the vulnerable situation. And uh, then there are several others, the new urban agenda, the Sendai framework, all of them promote a people-centered approach uh, with the inclusion of persons with disabilities. And like, as you know, you know india has been on the top of things it has uh, one of the uh, it has been one of the first few countries that has signed and ratified the treaty india has also you know, been one of I mean, has one of the most progressive laws in the world which is the rights of persons with disabilities act and uh, this has been possible because uh, of the disability uh, movement in our country and and if you just look uh, back at the recent performance uh, of our para olympians at the tokyo para olympics in 2021 it was a historic performance right we won 19 uh, medals so not only was it commendable and of course kudos to the uh, para olympians but also it was a testament of the progress that is taking place uh, although slow and steady but the progress is taking place uh, and definitely, you know, there are, like I mentioned earlier, there are gaps. For example, we still follow the 2011 census, which accounts for 2.21% uh, of the disabled population in India, whereas uh, WHO estimates 15% of, of the world population is disabled. But now because of the RPWD Act in India, uh, which recognizes 21 disabilities as opposed to the seven disabilities that were recognized previously, it means that there will be an increase in the number of persons with disabilities uh, in the coming uh, census, which is uh, hopefully will happen in uh, 2024, which will be India's first digital census. So that you uh, and that increase in number of persons with disabilities will also reflect in the decision of the policymakers. So that would result in better, uh, you know, and targeted social protection policies and programs, included budget allocations for persons with disabilities. And hopefully people with disabilities will be seen as a vote bank i mean it's always not a negative thing they will be seen as a vote bank so that you know the issues related to persons with disabilities can come in the forefront so we have a long way to go but there is scope given that progress has taken place over the past few yeah, decades here when you mentioned about how there are more populations of persons with disability because of how we went from seven types of disability to 21 type of disability i think it's very true because i remember one time when we all went to Banaras. So we had this interaction with the disability officer over there. And then one of the very interesting um, insight that the disability officer provided was, was how um, it's very difficult because we have identified 21 types of disability, but the fact that we do not have capacities to sort of identify 21 type of disability because their needs are diverse, they're right. different type of people. So then the challenge then again arises, like for instance, let's say thalassemia or mm. say, you know, everybody identifies physical disability, but we also have included a lot of invisible disability. And I think there's a whole lot of um, discourse there. The officer was saying that, you know, the struggle is now documenting that many right. because you need different kind of uh, practitioners to sort of identify other kind of mm. disabilities that are there and so that sort of capacity building i think mm -hmm. are i think is a new challenge that uh, we face 
I wanted to understand, you know, how is it different, disability inclusion in the West and the global South? So, uh, the thing is that the disability movement in the West is like eons ahead, right? They have come a long way, particularly if we talk about America in the 1960s when the disability rights movement intensified uh, to the passage of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. They have made great strides. Uh, and in doing so, uh, you know, uh, I mean, of course, you you must have uh, seen Crip Camp, right? Yeah. And how inspiring and empowering those stories were. So, uh, so basically, they, uh, the West has also in inspired and empowered persons with disabilities in many countries of the global south, right, to fight for their rights. And talking particularly about disability movement in India, it is not even uh, 30 years old. It was only in the 1995 that we had our first law for persons with disabilities. I guess also it was post the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. The disability sector in India pushed for a disability law of its own. And finally, in 1995, we had our own uh, Disability Act. Uh, but before uh, that, there was no mention uh, of disability. Maybe like one small mention here and then some document, but there was nothing else. There was no recognition given to persons with disabilities. So, uh, I mean, it's fair to say that disability movement in the global south is still at a very young, at very nascent stage, right? So maybe comparing the disability rights uh, or the disability inclusion in the west and the global south would, uh, would be premature in the sense that we don't have the same starting point. So, uh, and in, in line with that thought, uh, there is also another school of thought, uh, it's called the Southern Theory. Uh, you can, uh, you know, read several uh, papers that argue that the everyday experiences of uh, persons with dis disabilities in developing nations is quite different from developed countries. If I remember correctly, it says that these experiences lie outside the realm of disability rights. So if, uh, if we put it simply, we need to consider the social economic conditions of a nation as it impacts the you know realization of these disability rights that we are uh, looking at. And uh, I mean, we need to look at the complexities of the countries in the global south. Most of the countries uh, in the West are high income uh, developed nations, right? They already have robust guidelines. They already have strict inclusion uh, policies. Moreover, they have strict monitoring and ac uh, accountability uh, frameworks and mechanisms. And because these nations have reached a certain level of development, they can focus their priorities on disability inclusion. But even then, if you see now and then, it's it's still not a rosy picture in the West, right? They have their own struggles and uh, the disability rights movement in these countries have still, again, you know, they also have a long way to go, go ahead. On the other hand, when you look at developing countries, they face several challenges, several socio-economic challenges, developmental uh, challenges. People are struggling every day uh, with everyday issues, you know, uh, necessities, uh, with poverty and hunger. And in, in this kind of a situation, it is difficult to also prioritize disability inclusion. So it continues to remain an afterthought for all of us, right? Also, international standards and norms are developed from the perspective of developed nations. And these need to be nationalized or localized for us to, you know, uh, for it to be adopted and integrated into our development plan. So contextualizing is another important aspect. But having said that, we should also aspire to do better. Uh, being a young nation, uh, you know, like such as ours, uh, and learning from the West, we have a great opportunity to ensure that disability inclusion, uh, it's in the development agenda right from the start, and it's not just a plug-in. So that we have, uh, so by the time we are at the stage that uh, currently the developed uh, countries are, we don't have to face the problems that they are uh, facing. So that is uh, important. Thank you, Aarti. Um, I was just wondering when you spoke about contextualizing part of it and how it needs to be contextualized at regional and national level. It just occurred to me that Kanika has been working on that since she joined Basics. So would you like to contribute to this discussion here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Uh, first of all, let me give you, like, let me start with an example, like when we are talking about contextualization or translation of all of these models, how it has happened in our country also. So we can see that, you know, uh, uh, earlier when it was a charity-based model, uh, some of the persons or children with disability were not even educated. Then it went with the social model, it went on to, um, it went on to, like, uh, you know, making blind schools, 
special schools and sending the persons or the children with disability to those uh, allocated schools but now we are we have moved forward we are talking about inclusive education we want to mainstream special education have special educators in each and every school because the number of disabilities have also increased so that is one of the contextualization which need to happen into our policy landscape so you know special educator because the need to identify a person who's dyslexic or person or the child uh, who's autistic uh, happens at the school level or at the uh, parent level so this kind of contextualization is something which needs to be translated into the way we are designing our cities which has been uh, which has been attempted i would say attempted um, and uh, at various level um, in our uh, by our program also both at the city level as well as at the national level so uh, like uh, you know the first first there has been a lot of things which has been done i would like to start with uh, first of all the harmonized guidelines which you um, like you know which has been recognized under the right uh, of persons with disability act and that is something which is uh, which leads out the standards for uh, universal accessibility in um, across like you know in the entire built environment um, and it's something which the, which uh, as how adi had said right based model and a person with disability can actually ask any um, organization or any uh, establishment to provide that kind of access which has been mandated in the harmonized guidelines um, so the harmonized guidelines actually echo like uh, it i think of the shift is a very progressive shift from the barrier free approach to the universal Uh, accessibility approach, uh, which will actually echo to the point which Adi has said that you know um, unless and until we tell people that there's a certain percentage of people you'll be making an impact, no one wants to do that, um, and it kind of caters to accessibility needs of a wide spectrum of people, uh, which um, which is like you know quite fascinating in itself. Um, so so that's one and uh, application of uh, or integration of the harmonized guidelines and standard into the state bylaws um, into the state and city bylaws into uh, the dpls is something into the project formulation itself is something which becomes even more important then so it's not only like you know we have the standards we also need to implement it integrate it into um, the into the project once the project is coming up in that itself it should it should be translated uh, for that we have developed a project cycle checklist uh, in which we are trying to um, highlight certain provisions which need to be integrated into the entire project cycle right from the feasibility study until the maintenance and uh, operation uh, until the maintenance and operation phase uh, so you know in the feasibility study itself we should be able to recognize how many users will actually be persons with disability persons with disability with Uh, what kind of disabilities? Like, for example, if if it's a person with visual impairment, if it's majority of the people are with uh, mobility impairment or things of that sort, um, and also the other user representing the various other demographics. So, you know, the feasibility study should not only look at okay, you know, uh, these many people will be using it. What is the quality of those users who who will be using or who will be facilitated by that particular project is something which becomes important. That will obviously be reflected into the concept development stage. Stage, design stage in the tendering stage also like in the procurement of um, all the all all of these provisions all of these elements become something which is which is very restricted in our country and that is something which need to be included into the procurement and the tendering stage itself and then comes the implementation so i'll give you a very fascinating example which i i multiple time i have given this is um in in the park where i go uh, i i'm always uh, like you know intrigued by the fact that they have put the warning tile where the guiding tiles should be and the guiding tactile tiles are there where the warning tiles should be and um, at one place which is even more interesting is that they were i think short of or they had the warning tiles also broke and they just put yellow color tiles so yellow color like you know so implementation is something which is in a very poor stage in our country and it's i don't think like how arti also has said multiple times it's not the intent it's that they don't know what is the purpose of these warning tiles and the capacity building of the masons of the contractors of the architects is the entire entire value chain there also need to be um, need to be enhanced so that they will implement it right and then obviously the monitoring and evaluation phase so that if the warning tile is broken they should not replace it with another yellow tile uh 
the next and the most interesting thing is the inclusivity framework which uh, basic program has come out in collaboration with um, Indian Institute of Technology Kharagpur. It's uh, uh, so like you know there are many interesting standards and we have standards for bus separately, railway separately, we have for education institutions separately but there's not one place where the city can actually like you know get everything okay. If even if I have to plan a city or a development plan per se then which your standards am I supposed to go and refer to. So that also the multiple multiplicity of so many different standards and the inconsistency which is which is existing in all of these standards also become one of the problems. The inclusivity standard what it does is it's 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 based on the notion that disability is not a physical issue um, and it presents all the regulatory and statutory provisions um, which are which should cater to the needs and priorities of all category of uh, people belonging to the vulnerable group including persons with different disabilities elderly women children all together it is uh, it facilitates the design of accessible safe and inclusive city apart from proposing design guidelines and planning standards the robust methodology which is to identify the various type of barriers which are existing in our cities and how or what kind of provision we should actually be providing it for. So the entire framework gives you three different type of uh, provisions like you know what you should consider when you are planning a development plan or the percentage of provisions which should be there, the implementation phase and the monitoring phase. And it is uh, it basically gives you the set of policies and strategies which any lo uh, urban local body or smart city of uh, smart city uh, corporation or development authority or any of the competent authority can actually refer to. Uh, to make a inclusive uh, a Indian city or a project safe as well as um, safe and inclusive for everyone, a universal accessible for everyone. So it's um, like you know it basically aims at providing a seamless accessibility and a complete value chain for a person uh, you know from his place to um, like it's, it's both ways. It goes at a, at a person's individual or independent uh, mobility. So from his uh, place he should be able to go uh, to the bus stop to the place where he works, navigate independently inside the work environment and come back with the same travel chain back to his house and also like you know in the life cycle of that person so from the person like you know uh, going to like a child with disability going to a playground uh, playing uh, like you know um, having uh, the the early childhood development provisions in the play area in the neighborhood area then going moving on to like you know education facility the school uh, the colleges then employment and recreation tourism so like you know uh, livelihood opportunity and governance aspect also which is to facilitate the right based approach which we have been uh, advocating mm -hmm. so i think I'll, I'll stop here yeah you've been very comprehensive in your explanation i think you touched upon the last mile connectivity or service delivery that you know from the beneficiary angle of it but also you also highlighted the issues that are there in terms of um, implementational issues in when it comes to a service provider so yeah thank you kanika but i have a lot of questions actually so i i mean before i go to the harmonized guideline i that the term that you used very interesting actually is that barrier free thing that you talked about and universal accessibility you know what do they mean so because you say that there's been a shift from it so what do they exactly mean i think it's a very interesting question and um, i would like to bring in a very different perspective also so first of all let me like tell you what a what a barrier-free environment which has been uh, used in uh, the earlier harmonized guidelines or actually it has been actually uh, in place since the uh, um, 1990s when uh, the first national action plan on barrier-free environment uh, which actually brought into a mainstream the aspect of making uh, a, a built environment inclusive for persons with disability started uh, it was the focus was only on a barrier-free environment uh, so the barrier-free environment is basically nothing but like you know um, anything or any physical, structural or um, man-made or natural barrier which obstructs the movement of a person particularly with mobility, uh, with uh, mobility impairment. Uh, so, so that's 
um, that's that's what is a barrier-free environment which has been propagated. But I would like to bring in my my understanding of barrier-free. So there's not only physical barriers. Uh, there are a lot many barriers which exist in our society which actually hampers onto the growth of any individual uh, with disability. So there are attitudinal barriers. So like you know social stigma, um, the the kind of attitude which people have towards persons with disability. You know, he's a disabled people. So people would sometimes look down upon uh, those uh, people, or they will think that you know, uh, okay, this person might not be might not be suitable for this particular job opportunity or might not be suitable for this particular um, like you know sports was one of the things that okay if you're a person on a wheelchair how can you play so those kind of attitude which exist uh, among many of many of the members of our society is something which hampers the growth of uh, persons with disability because we are talking about equal opportunity and the attitudes act as a barrier towards equal opportunity the second thing is the communication barrier uh, wherein uh, like you know people are not People don't understand uh, that they, the persons with disability, also have communication needs. And again, uh, give you an anecdote of um, it's a very interesting anecdote, like you know uh, how product design or universal design, which I'll talk about, uh, is something which is which is very important. Uh, so, like you know, a person with visual impairment, he's having a fever. So, COVID, COVID times we are living in, fever is something which is which is very very. Um, common and uh, the person with a visual impairment will not be able to measure his temperature now our, our the thermometer design does not communicate with a person with visual impairment or a person with uh, like you know who is dyslexic so um, you know that's something which we don't even realize and the same thing holds true for the communication which we provide in our built environment also uh, we never think that the tactile signage or the tact a brace uh, information system is something which is important and person with sensory impairments always face difficulty in communicating uh, with not only people but with the environment also the second thing of uh, like then obviously there is policy barriers so you know uh, there are a lot of laws there are a lot of guidelines there are a lot of standards but they don't acknowledge the diverse needs the diversity which is existing among the persons with disability itself so you know uh, maybe i will provide a ramp but not give tactile or maybe you know i will have the signage everywhere but uh, like you know no braille format or i will um, i will provide like um, hearing impairment so you know um, the loudspeakers are um, saying that you know in an emergency situation they are saying evacuate 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 but a person with uh, hearing impairment will not be able to respond to that kind of a scenario so the policies do not accommodate to the needs the diverse needs which which kind of caters to um, the different type of persons with disability and this aspect of reasonable accommodation also is something which is a lot many time like you know twisted to the uh, the the individuals um, understanding of uh, the needs of accessibility needs of persons with disabilities so and then obviously we have the programmatic uh, barriers so like you know um, i'll give you a typical example um, of lifts or the traffic signals so the scheduling itself is not proper for the person with visual impairment or the person on a wheelchair to actually enter into the lift or to cross the road so the the scheduling never actually caters to the time which is required by them to uh, to like you know transfer or to uh, for their mobility uh, then similar thing is with education our curricular systems are not um, encompassing the needs the special needs of persons with all the children with disability and then um, like you know which all of these barriers and then we all obviously we have the transportation barriers so the seamless connectivity from point a to point b in the entire travel chain is something which is more than often broken at one point not if not more so you know um, so like you know for example if if i have accessible bus then bus stop might not be accessible if i have both accessible then probably like you know the last mile connectivity will be something which will be an option uh, which will be uh, something which will be broken so so all of these things all of these together act as a barrier barriers to uh, the uh, to independent movement and growth of persons with disability and all of that can actually be dissolved if we adopt a universal accessibility or the universal design approach so universal accessibility is something which uh, which basically makes all of these things accessible for persons with disabilities uh, by made by adopting the principles of universal design so um, i would not uh, like you know bore you with 
the eight urban design uh, or the universal design principles which which are true for uh, like which are universal or which are globally accepted but i would uh, focus more on the five uh, universal design principles or universal design india principle which has been adopted or which are most applicable in india so it uh, talks about saman sahaj sanskritik sasta or sundar so you know it's it's very simple as simple as it is quoted saman means Design for everyone. Sahaj means it should be simple and simple to comprehend, simple to use. Sanskritic it should be contextual to Indian uh, scenarios. Sasta it should be affordable so that no one can say that you know okay I will not be putting this particular thing or I will not be giving you this feature because it's expensive. And Sundar, Sundar is obviously like you know it should not become a uh, become like a like. Okay, this this particular lamp is kind of taking away the uh, the entire beauty of the design of the building. It should be very well integrated so that it enhances the beauty of that particular building or space. So yeah, thanks, Kanika. So can you throw some light on the revised harmonized guideline? Do you think this revision uh, will help to change the urban narrative on disability inclusion? definitely definitely veronica i think uh, this particular harmonized guidelines has um, has adopted a lot of different perspectives uh, and the first and foremost is um, the the perspective of um, like you know participatory approach which is integral to inclusion as a concept in itself so we have tried to uh, not only like you know uh, adopt inclusion in its thought but in the process also and the and the multiple number of consultations which have uh, been done uh, to conceptualize or to ideate onto this particular document is something which is commendable and it's even more commendable because all of that happened um, in the peak of the second wave of covid where you know uh, we were not uh, all of us were not um, in a comfortable state of mind but still uh, we are glad that so many people could actually come and express their needs express their accessibility needs or the challenges which they face in um, their everyday life in the indian city uh, so that's something which is uh, which is um, very interesting about this particular uh, particular document um, and along with it you know a lot of comments have been given by so many number of um, experts from different domains and you know all of that obviously enriched the quality of this particular document the second most interesting thing is um, the diversity which this particular document Uh, acknowledges and addresses uh, so you know uh, there are various disability uh, there not only disability but when we are talking about an enabling environment it caters to a wider range of people uh, so it uh, it is like you know persons with obviously the persons with hearing impairment persons with visual impairment persons with cognitive impairment persons with neuro uh, diverse conditions uh, persons with uh, physical injuries or um, um, ambulant diseases persons with uh, without their uh, with upper body upper limb uh, disease uh, disabilities and uh, you know um, the then along with it, the health conditions the chronic health conditions including uh, the cardiac uh, terminal illness the temporary diseases like um, like you fracture of your leg or fracture of your arm um, and then obviously the wheelchair users um, the the needs of infants and children um, expecting mothers nursing patients um, older people and um, the situational context like you know for example if you are care carrying a heavy uh, luggage or if you are carrying a lot of groceries in both of your hands um, and you know uh, the the um, other other things like the weather so all of these things um, have been um, considered while uh, formulating this particular um, document and um, the accessibility needs of this diverse range of people diverse range of users is something which was kind of um, tried to understand and incorporated into the provisions uh, or the uh, guidelines which uh, exist uh, so so this um, like you know um, the the um, this uh, specific yet generic perspective towards creating um, an enabling environment for all is something which has been um, attempted in this particular uh, document and the various um, attribute of accessibility for persons with disability including the entire do uh, entire range of disabilities something which has been addressed 
the third interesting thing about the harmonic guidelines is its applicability um, like ease of use uh, so you know a lot of times like um, in, in our consultation also like the uh, people have been saying that uh, the harmonic guidelines first of all uh, the illustrations are not proper so implementation becomes difficult they don't understand how to implement it and then the 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 uh, guidelines are not comprehensive enough to cater to a wider range of projects so so these are the two things which also we have tried to incorporate and address in this particular uh, in this particular um, document so we have tried to I try to um, address uh, divide the entire document into external and internal components and a variety of internal and external components have been included not only that we have tried to um, address to a wide range of building typologies also like from residential um, until uh, recreational all of the varied building typology and the uh, land uses have been incorporated and specific guidelines have been given for each of them uh, the th fourth aspect is accessibility audit so you know once even if uh, we have made it the operation and maintenance become uh, become the two key component which uh, which are often lacking um, in you know, maintaining the accessibility of that built environment and that's something which uh, the the Hanmei guidelines addresses it also gives you a brief or very easy framework in which anyone can actually evaluate the uh, accessibility of that built space uh, with a very specific like with, in all very um, interesting note of like you know um, if it is acceptable to you if it is satisfactory if it is a best practice so not only a yes no or giving marks but about the user experience how you can audit a particular space um, and last but not the least is uh, emergency and the information uh, and communication system which I, I was also talking about earlier has been incorporated into this uh, these guidelines so emergency situations since we like you know uh, there are so many multiple disasters which are uh, which are um, included which which India is vulnerable to and in emergency response system become very important when we are talking about the built environment and um, the information and communication particularly in times of those emergency situations have been um, like you know, how we can make it more accessible for person with any kind of disability is something which has been included and I forgot to mention that uh, in the illustrations also we have tried to bring in the flavor of India like you know with the um, with the different kind of users who have been included in each of the illustration there is <laughs> there are like a woman wearing a sari or like you know the Indian um, men attire also are a few things which are uh, which have been included into the illustration uh, with so much things said I think I I it's safe to say that we are progressing tremendously towards the inclusion of uh, persons with disabilities and I think our conversations have also been highlighted, you know, how the kind of progress that India has made in terms of disability inclusion, this acknowledgement, identification, capacity building, contextualizing, you know, like solutions, I think are, are like truly very important. So now just to sort of, I mean, if you can quickly summarize the key thumb rules that as planners, practitioners or advocates of uh, inclusive development needs to keep in mind. And this goes out for both you, Kanika uh, uh, and Aarti. Alright, so um, I'll take the first stab at it and uh, I think it's more to do with sensitization and uh, bringing this um, like you know inco inculcating the feeling that I need to be inclusive and all of my designs need to all of all of my design my built environment the built environment which I'm creating and uh, like you know spaces around me should be universally accessible that's something which need to be inherently in all the urban practitioners why do we always think in binary terms like you know uh, we when we are designing also we think okay you know I need to give a male toilet and a female toilet but um, even if I'm thinking about universal accessibility I'll think okay I'll just make one wheelchair, um, wheelchair uh, toilet for a wheelchair user I never ever think about the intersectionality that might be actually existing in in the uh, in the in that group also like you know a wheelchair 
male will be different than a major major female uh, viewing a uh, female female so you know those those kind of things or those those sensitivity is something which is lacking which is leading to so many different challenges i never think that you know a child with disability whenever i say i say a person with disability and automatically a grown up person comes to my mind i never think that okay you know a child with a, um, a prostate leg might be might be uh, like you know roaming around and i need to make my environment more inclusive for that one child um, you know uh, similarly like you know a lot of youtube videos i have been seeing where um, where like you know the uh, child is deaf by birth and you know how that one hearing aid actually enhances the uh, hearing of for that particular baby but we never think when we are designing our toys also that a person uh, that a baby with um, you know hearing impairment will actually be using that because we don't think of the intersectionality and the vulnerability of this group only increases with all of those intersectionalities when it comes so we yeah, are like you know for a fact that there are more number of um, persons with disability living in the lower income groups than then like you know the upper income group so but i never think when i'm planning for like when i'm planning for a urban poor i think of a urban poor who is fully able i never think of a urban poor or a female on a wheelchair living in a slum area i never plan for that lady but that that level of sensitivity to plan for the most vulnerable in that marginalized group needs to be there needs to be inculcated into our thinking and that is what will bring the change that is what will actually trigger the entire um, you know uh, process of inculcating um, or making our environments more inclusive for everyone and i think that the the sensitivity plus the capacities of the entire capacity building of the entire value chain is something which is the which is most needed we need to like you know sensitize the top most layer as well as the bottom most layer of what to do and how to do and that's that's like you know something which will automatically bring up the change so yeah i think these are the two points so yeah just to add to what kanika uh, kanika just said it it is important for us to recognize the needs and challenges that are faced by uh, the diversity of disabilities that we are talking about and the in intersectionalities also and one way that we can ensure this is by involving persons with disabilities in all our decision making processes so uh, you know uh, they need to be involved in all stages of de development whether it is the initial planning and uh, design stage the implementing uh, implementation stage or the monitoring and evaluation stage i mean if you look at it this way uh, we would like you me kanika we would never uh, you know want anyone else taking a decision on our behalf uh, moreover um, neither myself or you uh, are capable of fully understanding the challenges and problems that persons with disabilities uh, face we can only assume you know so persons with disabilities uh, best understand their own needs and vulnerabilities so if we want to ensure that we are following the correct path towards a sustainable and uh, resilient future for all of us we need to ensure uh, uh, you know we are following a participatory approach to development uh, only then can we ensure that we are leaving no one behind so yeah thanks aarti thanks kanika i would not add anything much more to it i'll leave the audience with this uh, food for thought and i think it's been lovely interacting with you both and thank you so much for sharing so much of your experience and insights yeah thank you welcome to facts of fat section of the podcast fab number 1 did you know that the department for empowerment of persons with disabilities DEPWD is a nodal agency responsible for overseeing the welfare of the PWDs and the implementation of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities Act 2016. It covers the assistance and rehabilitation needs for all the identified disabilities under the Act. DEPWD is also the nodal department for the implementation of the UNCRPD in India. Fab number 2 like Arthi said in the podcast in the 2021 Tokyo Paralympics India won 5 gold medals 8 silver and 6 bronze medals this is how well the indian contingent performed winning a total of 19 medals to register their best ever haul at the mega event we would like to congratulate all the medal winning para athletes as well as the participants for making india proud that's it for the fab section until next time This brings us to the end of today's session. 
If you have any queries or want us to cover any other interesting topics, you can write to us at icc@niua.org. If you enjoy our show or want to know more about the center or NIUA, you can also check out our website www.niua.org/inclusivecitycenter and follow us on our social media handles. Subscribe to this podcast and get notifications for more exciting episodes to come. Till then, stay safe and think inclusive.